podcast. I'm getting good on that guitar riff, right? Come it is, on. It's getting scary. You're shredding. I am ABC News <laughs> Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. We're joined as well by... Deputy Political Director Shoshana Walsh. Why do we have the fortifications here? Because this is a big day. A big this deal. is We are Inauguration Eve, but more importantly, it's my birthday. Uh, I, oh. Yeah, well, it's huge. That's huge, John. I, I think you've always expected to spend your no, birthday just I, like you this. Know, every four years, they put together a big, big party for my birthday. You're supposed to get it's, a day off at ABC if you're on your birthday. Yeah. So, so I'm glad you're working. Yeah. <laughs> it makes you feel a little bit better. But happy birthday, Wow. So tomorrow's the inauguration. I, I'm going to be perched up on the west front of the Capitol uh, where the swearing-in will take place and the speech and all of that. But I've just been told by Arlette Signs, uh, who will be working with me all day tomorrow, ABC's uh, great Arlette Signs, that uh, I need to uh, – that my, my call time is essentially 4 a.m., Rick. Ooh. 4 a.m. Uh, you're, not, you're not important enough that you can't get someone to stand in for you for a couple uh, hours? That I sounds, mean, that sounds brutal. I mean, what the heck's going wow, on? Wow, wow, wow. The, the, the city's already kind of shut down. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they shut down Pennsylvania Avenue. They shut down a lot of the streets around the White House. Um, I was at the White House this morning uh, for, for, uh, for Good Morning America. And let me tell you, I, I've never seen more activity on the White House grounds. There were sprucing the place up. Oh, they're bit, sprucing the good. place up. You had, you had guys out there with, with you know, leaf blowers, weed whackers, uh, street cleaners, um, it, it's just like they're they're getting ready. It's moving day, and they're 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 getting ready. Did you see any gold or marble being moved in? Did any of this happen? What, what, Rick, you, what do you suggest? I nothing, nothing at all. But but uh, Shush, I want to get you in on this because it, there's something very formal. The pageantry of this moment is fairly predictable. The, the details are dictated by the Constitution. We know exactly what's going to happen at exactly noontime with the, the peaceful transfer of power. But there's been nothing predictable about this man or this inauguration. It feels like it's there's a there's a sense of overhang on all of this that no one knows what comes at 12:01. Right. We have no idea what's coming next. But while all eyes are on uh, on the Capitol, watching that swearing in, what I'm really interested in is that behind the scenes, what happens at the White House? One family out, another family in. The moving trucks on opposite sides of the White House. Uh, that kind of kind of. The every day of moving into a new house, there's no every day at the White House. They, they have less than six hours to accommodate the entire move from when the Obamas walk out until the Trumps walk in. That's I mean, so it's, cool. I mean, it's really <laughs> imagine the choreography it's around all really of that. unbelievable. So, uh, just just a, a, a quick anecdote about how kind of crazy these times are. I um, I had this this uh, thing we, we we talked about, Rick. I, I uh, you know obviously we're all thinking of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, who's in the hospital. A former first lady, Barbara Bush, also in the hospital. We did a little something uh, on this when, when, when the news broke uh, the day before yesterday uh, on on Good Morning America um, and. I mentioned in, in the course of my thing that, you know, of course, he wasn't going to be coming to the inauguration anyway due to health concerns even before any of this happened. And I said and, – and I added just kind of as an aside that, well, you know, then again, he wasn't really a big Donald Trump fan. I mean, we, we know because right. Jeb mentioned that, that his father used to throw shoes at the TV when Donald Trump appeared, uh, you know, on, on the television during the primaries. Anyway, I got a, I got a call yesterday, Rick. You did? Someone called you just like out of the blue? How did they even track you down? That's I, pretty crazy. It Who was, called you? It Who was called a, you, John? A, a Donald Trump. Donald J. Trump? Donald President J. Trump. Yeah, yeah. He, he uh, f- was preceded by an email. Um, from, uh, from, from an aide, I presume. Yes, yes, from, from, from his, from his uh, assistant. And uh, sending me a letter that George Herbert Walker Bush 
wrote him, uh, Trump told me as, as we talked that he, he had been hand-delivered it to him just the day before. Uh, it was a letter that it was, it was uh, dated a few days earlier, but that, that, uh, that said that he wouldn't be making the inauguration. Wonderful letter. Yeah. Wonderful letter yeah, saying, you know. You posted it on Twitter. And it's yeah, yeah. His, his doctors. Yes, yeah. he was very gracious. So, so Bush, wishing him the best. Yeah. So Bush. But I, I just, I, I, it's, it's interesting to see that, that Trump himself is, uh, is still, uh, you know, less than 48 hours before swearing in, taking the time to just make sure we got all the right information sure. for Good Morning America. Of course. And we've never seen Shush, a, 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 a president-elect, or presumably he's going to be a president like this, who is so in touch with the news cycle, minute by minute, hour by hour. And you saw it play out with these tweets, uh, the angry tweets of John Lewis after he came out and said he wouldn't do, wouldn't attend the inauguration. He's been attacking him day after day, uh, which has led to this unprecedented, uh, by, our, by our estimation, political boycott of, uh, of the speech, 50, 60 Democrats. I think we're over 60 point. now that yeah, are and they're showing making, up. To, to, my, to my mind, it's, what's fascinating is always people that miss it, but they don't usually make a big deal out of it. And some of them, including Congressman Lewis, are saying, we don't consider him to be a legitimate president. Trump doesn't like that. And, and he swung back hard at that. And that's, that's an undeniable element of, uh, of the festivities is the, the missing members of Congress, the reason that they've gone missing, the fact that Trump is swinging back at them, uh, the fact that Obama is going to be leaving town, but not for very long. And you heard in his press conference, John, that you were at this week, that he's, he's going to be back very soon. But the, the, this, is, this doesn't feel like the clean end of one thing and the beginning of something else, I think, because you have all of these external factors and a president-elect, soon-to-be president, who's going to engage in those minute details. I think that there's a lot of questions that we have past Friday, but one of the biggest I have is, will President Trump continue to hit back at people he sees as his adversaries on such a real combat level on twi- Twitter? Um, Including people he doesn't need to attack. That, that's almost interesting. all of them he doesn't. You know, the, the, these are people that, that he, I mean, he's above this. He, he, he could let this stuff just kind of wash, I mean, who cares? I think we're going to be watching closely to see if his staff, his aides, and his family, we heard that from Ivanka this morning, if they're going to be able to kind of rein in uh, those Twitter attacks. But it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating transition for so many reasons. I, I, Rich, you, you, I mean, Rick, you, you've, you've touched on the utter unpredictability of, of, of all of this. They have said, you know, we talk about uh, a first 100 days. In our conversations with the, the, the Trump team, they say, actually, watch our first 100 hours. Mm-hmm. Although it's unclear when the clock when, actually yeah, starts right. day one is ticking, day Monday four, or is it the? Yeah, yeah. But uh, but you know, I mean, the, the and and uh, they're still he, he's going to basically start with almost no cabinet except for yeah. the, the the really critical ones: mm-hmm. defense, homeland oh, security, CIA. Um, CIA and director. and CIA director will be confirmed uh, 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 tomorrow. But, you know, he's going to have most of his cabinet not there. Uh, most of his other, you know, kind of deputy level uh, appointments have not been made either. Yeah. And, and the, of course, the task of actually governing falls to him in addition to all the other distractions and the other pieces of this. And it's easy to – President Obama even said to – his part of his advice to, to President-elect Trump is you're going to have to delegate. You're going to have to learn that you can't do it all yourself. Um, but, you know, he comes in with absolutely no government experience. As we've right. said, no government experience, no military experience. We've right. never seen a president. The, the previous 43, no, you know, all had one or the other. That's right. Um, so he comes in with, with, with no government experience himself. But the other thing is he's surrounding himself with people both in the White House staff and 
in most of his cabinet with people that have little or no government experience. Right. More military experience and a, and a, and a lot of CEOs. There are some generals. We do right. have some generals. More yeah. military experience than, than, than on average. But yes, far less government experience than, than, than on average. And, and they get to govern. And, and, that's, and this is a moment. We talk a lot about the history of eight years ago. This is history as well. And, and it's a soaring moment for millions of Americans who felt like they never had their voice heard before. And I, it's I'm a moment of dread for yes. I mean, for, the, for many others. Th- that's the incredible dichotomy here, and and how much Trump speaks to that. Clearly, he knows how to channel the voice of the people that are frustrated and angry and excited about his presidency. But does he speak to the fact that more than half of voters didn't vote for him uh, two months ago, and that there is such considerable uh, disappointment and fear, even in some circles, about what his presidency, re- presidency represents? And I think a lot of Americans, of course, will probably take more than just one speech, but that inaugural address on Friday, I think that that's a critical goal, bringing this country together. We've heard Donald Trump, including beginning on election night, saying that he'll be the president of all the people, that he will bring this country together. We haven't really seen that in the day-by-day, the Twitter back and forth, but Will, will we see that in that inaugural address tomorrow? So we've got a, a great show to, to bring you on this. We've got a couple big interviews. Very big interviews. Senator Tim Scott, a uh, Republican from South Carolina, the only African-American in the Senate. He spent some quality time at the MLK. Great Memorial guy. Earlier in the week, really thoughtful man, talking about this moment in history and what, what it means for him as a, as a black man. Because he didn't vote for Barack Obama, but he recognizes, and you'll hear this in the interview, exactly what that moment meant. And he spent some time with Mike Pence at the MLK Memorial in the wake of the John Lewis affair. And not he was not a he was not a big Trump fan in those no, uh, almost and and that's the thing about uh, that for so many of these members of Congress yeah. most of them almost all of them weren't Trump fans they didn't want him to win and Trump remembers that Trump you think he does you think he remembers the Mitch McConnell <laughs> he might uh, and then George Will uh, you know John the last time we had George him on, Will the last time we had him on um, the the, the, he, the Cubs were I think down three to two. And uh, I guess using the same analogy, uh, I think you'd say that, uh, that that Trump was down three games to nothing against Hillary. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. That's what, the, that's what we thought. It didn't look like the Cubs were going to win. It didn't look like Trump was going to win. Uh, but George Will has been a critic and tangled with him publicly in the past, uh, has some interesting reflections on this moment. Yeah, and we remember it was almost exactly eight years ago uh, that he actually had President-elect Barack Obama over at his house yeah. for a dinner. I, you know that, and and, and, and we're going to ask him. We're going to ask George if, if 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 you know how how the dinner was. The, did the invite go out to Donald Trump? Uh, I mean, you know, so incredible. Well, uh, take us to the Scott interview. And we're pleased to be joined here on Powerhouse Politics by Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina. And noticed that you spent uh, Martin Luther King Day or part of the day with uh, Vice President Elect. Mike Pence. I'm curious how that event came about. Coming in the in the wake of this public spat with John Lewis and the, and the president-elect, was that one reason to do it? And, and what was the conversation like over at the memorial? Well, we were talking. Uh, we were the conversation started before the spat uh, happened. So uh, we were thinking about ways to honor MLK's legacy, and one of the options we had was either doing something in South Carolina or doing something in D.C. And obviously, the closer you get to the inauguration, the easier it is to do something in D.C. So the option was to uh, land in D.C. and look for ways to honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and what he means for the future of the country. And we opted to go to the monument. 
And what was your take on on the the spat between Congressman Lewis and uh, and the president elect? We've seen him respond. President elect Trump has responded just about every day. Uh, sometimes when he's asked about it, sometimes when he's not asked about it. Uh, Congressman Lewis taking a lot of heat for saying he doesn't believe the president elect Trump to be a legitimate president. But what's your takeaway on this? A lot of folks who have a lot of respect for for Congressman Lewis have got to be perplexed by by seeing this war of words. Well, a couple of things are, I think are equally true. Number one, John Lewis is a friend of mine and also a civil rights hero. But more than just a civil rights hero, he is an American hero, and that's indisputable. The man was beaten to an inch of his life. His skull was fractured to make sure that people like me have an opportunity to engage in the political process that I'm uh, invested in so heavily now. And at the exact same time, Donald Trump is the legitimate president of this country. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to participate in meaningful ways in moving this country forward. I think John Lewis should be at the inauguration along with the other 49 or 50 Democrats who are looking for ways to boycott the inauguration. This is a chance for our country to do what we did eight years ago and four years ago, pivot towards finding solutions to the things that are seriously uh, concerning to the average person in this country, people working paycheck to paycheck. And as I said, this weekend is so important for us in in light of MLK's holiday to focus on race relations, reconciliation, to focus on education, the path to the American dream, the closest thing to magic, and not to get involved in a verbal game of Russian roulette. This is very dangerous for this country, very dangerous for those folks being influenced by our leaders. Well, why dangerous? And, and, and what, what's, your, what's your hope on the, on the, on the heart of the, of the president-elect? You said you want Congressman Lewis to be there. What do you hope the president-elect does or doesn't do? Well, I think, uh, as I said uh, previously, think about the, the, when Donald Trump is punched, he's a counterpuncher. He hits back, whether it's Meryl Streep, whether it's John Lewis, whether it's John McCain. Right. We, we've seen this uh, play out very, very often in the same fashion. So I think it's instructive on all of our parts. There's a old scripture in, in Matthew, the book of Matthew, that says, love your neighbors. You know, it teaches us to love those who persecute you. I think the best response, uh, I had an opportunity on Twitter this last week to respond to a, a number of folks that were calling me uh, all kinds of things to include the N-word. And yeah. my response was not to uh, throw throw you know gasoline on a fire. It was to look for ways to put that fire out, to, to starve it of the oxygen necessary to move it forward. And I would hope that we as leaders would look for ways to bring this country together from the president of the United States down to every member of Congress and to leaders in households and on the state level as well. We, we are, in my opinion, in a very fragile state. We should all be focused on those folks who are trying to kill Americans from the outside and not participate in anything that demonizes those of us within this country. And to be clear, that's your message to the president-elect as well as other elected officials, that everyone that's should be take de-escalating a little bit. Yeah, Rick, to be clear, that message should resonate in every house from the White House to my house. Sure. Uh, that There is no exception to that message. So we just heard uh, the, the the final press conference from from President Obama, of course, the first African-American president. He was asked about that legacy. He also said that he is not going to stay on the sidelines if he sees institutionalized racism, if he sees 
any sense of, uh, of, of the country turning in a big way along racial lines. Is that an appropriate role for him? Do you hope that he uses that platform? You don't agree with his politics, but his place in the history books is secure and he has that platform. Do you, do you hope that he stays active in that way? Well, I think a better question is not whether I hope he stays active. Uh, perhaps there should be a statement and not a question. He will stay active. Sure. He is without any question. He's a charismatic leader that has drawn uh, folks to the polls in a way that only only Donald Trump has done. So it's going to be very interesting to have a young, healthy uh, president engaged in the world of politics even after he is uh, post his presidency. Uh, it's something that will be a new normal. And we'll adjust to it. The question I hope that we all seek to answer is how do we, as a nation and as leaders, move this country forward? Bringing attention to wrongs is a very important role for leaders to do. Also, bringing solutions that are right is equally as important. I think you'll find us having conversations about those solutions, specifically in the area of jobs and education, where if you look at inner cities and rural areas, The reality of it is too many kids are not progressing forward from an educational standpoint in the rural areas that results in incredibly high overdoses and in inner cities it oftentimes leads to very high levels of crime. We can diffuse both of those situations with the power of education, the power of hope, but we have to have policies policies that lead in that direction. So let me ask you about the, the sense right now on, on Capitol Hill. You haven't been in the Senate all that long, but now you'll have yes, your, your first opportunity for united government, Republican control of the Senate and the, and the House and the White House. But at the same time, Donald Trump wasn't, wasn't your candidate, wasn't the candidate of most United States senators, most House members either. Are, are you convinced that he is a conservative and will be a conservative president? Or, or are you concerned, or are you fellow senators concerned, that you could see a presidency that goes in other directions versus the ones that you and, and so many of your colleagues have promised? The only thing that one should try to predict with our president-elect is that it will be unpredictable, yeah. number one. Number two, uh, he did not run, in my opinion, as a conservative. He ran as an agent of change. So we should expect to be equally unhappy with some of his policies from the right to the left. That's the one thing we'll have in common is that he will have an infrastructure program that may not be exciting to conservatives, and he will have a tax reform plan that will be I think very exciting to conservatives. Uh, We will see the focus move towards middle America and folks working paycheck to paycheck. So whether that's the replacement of Obamacare with something that is far more patient-centric and private sector driven to a tax code that reduces uh, the taxes on the average person in the country working paycheck to paycheck and increases their take-home pay, and also improves American competitiveness on an international and uh, international stage. So that raises an interesting question, and I haven't heard it articulated quite that way before, but I think you're right. He's going to obviously frustrate people on both sides because he isn't as Absolutely. ideological. But does that, does that mean that, that you or that Republicans in the Senate and the House need to adjust to that reality, or are you going to be at times the, the loyal opposition to portions of the Trump agenda? Rick, that's a great question. I honestly think the answer is everyone should be who they are. My responsibility are to the voters of South Carolina. They elected me as a consistently conservative voice, hopefully a voice of reason. And I will play the role that I am most comfortable comfortable with, which is being myself. 
And so when there are areas of disagreement, uh, I know that I am going to uh, take on the likelihood of, of strong criticism from the White House. But the reality of it is I'm going to stand up for what I believe in. And I believe that a consistently conservative paradigm is in the best interest long term and short term of the United States. And when we are in when we are congruent in our convictions, I think we will work well together. And when we are not, we will uh, do our best to explain why we have differing opinions and uh, I hope to be an ally more than someone who's not, uh, but that will be you know, based on the policies that come out the White House. And so far, so good. I, I'm, not, uh, I'm excited about what I've heard mostly, the infrastructure plan. I'm going to be a little hesitant on until I see the details. Finally, what is this moment like for you versus the moment eight years ago? It's a diff- you're at a different position, obviously a slightly different stage of your life, uh, a different politics, and, and what it meant eight years ago to have a black man inaugurated. What is, wh- how, would you, how does this moment in history strike you versus the, the feeling you had in 2009? Rick, I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, very clear and, and somewhat personal on this uh, question. Uh, nine years ago, my grandfather was incredibly healthy. Uh, African-American man born in 1921, raised in a very small town in South Carolina who never thought he could even dream, much less experience the day when an African-American became president of this, of this country, of our country. And he was, for the second time, uh, with tears in his eyes, I took him to vote, uh, he for President Obama and me for uh, Mr. McCain, and that moment should live forever uh, as an amazing moment where America uh, said that we want uh, a president who encourages and inspires the best of us, and uh, that was a hope. I think eight years later, uh, after a shift to the left that is too far from my appetite, uh, I, I look at the hope and the opportunity that lies before me. My grandfather unfortunately passed last year. Uh, we live in a world now where we have a chance to take a conservative uh, paradigm and transpose it over the nation and hopefully do so in a way that uh, suggests and proves that there is compassion in conservative policies. Uh, and we fight for the soul of America and we fight for the best of America. And sometimes we'll get it wrong, but hopefully most of us will come together so that we can get it right. That is a wonderful sentiment. I think one that we can, we can all applaud at this moment is, a, is this great moment of democracy is upon us. Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina, thank you for being here. Thank you for your, for your thoughtful comments and for your work. Thanks so much. Thank you, Rick. All right. Be well. Hey, it's Rick here. We have another new podcast from ABC News to tell you about. It is Popcorn with Peter Travers. He talks to the biggest Hollywood stars, and I mean the absolute biggest. They stop by to talk about their new films and open up about their experience in the business. Again, that is Popcorn with Peter Travers. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Well, Rick, even before that interview, I thought that Senator Tim Scott will be one of the more interesting figures to watch on Capitol Hill in this Trump era. After that, I am certain that he will be one of the most interesting. It's interesting to me because the way he talks about ideology and the idea that conservatives could be as disappointed uh, in, in Trump as liberals, I think, is 
it's not a novel concept, but I think it's a novel thing to internalize at the beginning because you hear a lot of happy talk right now. Uh, Paul Ryan among them saying, look, you, the, the Trump agenda is the Republican agenda. Actually, it's not. And, and, and I think Tim Scott's thought about this a lot, clearly. and He realizes the power of Trump was bigger than the power of conservative ideology. And you will have times. This guy's not ideological. He's not really moored to any particular beliefs. He's going to challenge conservatives. And conservatives like Tim Scott and George Will can either go along, and I think in the case of George Will, you're seeing the answer uh, has already has already been uh, offered. Uh, in the case of Tim Scott, it's going to be challenging because there's going to be times where he's going to say, that's not my principle, but he is the president. He's onto something powerful. But right now, you know, for all the talk of, of Trump's low approval ratings, and they are historically low for an incoming president, uh, he does seem to have a bit of a honeymoon among conservatives in Congress uh, and, 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 and grassroots rank and file, I, I, I would say. I mean, even Ted Cruz is playing nice. Yeah. Uh, but, but you mentioned George Will. George Will, I don't think George Will's ever going to quite get on board. But this is a guy who's a student of history. So let's, let's talk to George Will. George, thanks a lot for being with us. Glad to be with you. Um, I'm, I'm coming to you from the White House uh, just a day after the Chicago Cubs uh, graced these grounds. <laughs> Um, I, I seem to recall uh, talking to you sometime before the election about what would be more improbable, a, a, a Chicago Cubs uh, victory in the World Series or, uh, or Donald Trump winning the presidency. <laughs> what did I say? I, well, I, I certainly don't think you thought both would happen. No, certainly not. <laughs> your money was on the Cubs, as I recall. Yeah. Um, so what, what's your sense? We're, we're coming into this I- inauguration. Um, uh, we're we're going to see... Donald Trump there on the west front of the Capitol, uh, taking the oath of office. He'll be up there at his side. Will be uh, President Obama, former President George W. Bush, Presidents Carter and Clinton, even Hillary Clinton. What 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 is this moment going to be like? I mean, what what is this? What does this all mean? Well, we we're very much in need of a moment of normality at this point, and this will be one. This is really the, the centerpiece of all, all our national civic liturgy. And therefore, for at least an hour, the blows of sound will stop. And we'll have, of course, cannon going off and bands playing and people praying. But it will be what nothing has been since Mr. Trump came down the escalator on, I guess it was June 15th, 2015. We will have an moment of absolute predictability and normality as we go through the routinized steps of this great moment. And that's one of the reasons you have rituals in churches and in civic life, is to uh, assure that people can, uh, every once in a while, know what's coming next, which we haven't been able to do since the elevator ride. And after the normality? Well, what we've learned in the transition is that there's been no transition. That is, there's a kind of stylistic seamlessness between the campaign and the transition. Uh, Mr. Trump did not uh, put away his Twitter account. He he did put away a number of the applause lines that most aroused the crowds, that uh, most aroused him as he traveled the country. Uh, Prosecuting Hillary Clinton, well, not so much. Mexico pay for the wall. Well, we'll see about that later. Uh, Deporting 200,000 people a month, all 11 million in two years of of the illegal immigrants. Well, perhaps not. 
so a, a lot has changed, but the general style of the man has not. Uh, he's been as, as pugnacious, to put it politely, uh, before the election uh, and after the election. There's been, been no change whatever, which makes you think that this is the real fella. What's your sense of what the conservative opposition is likely to look like? Because it's, it seems like on the face so far, and in your, from your perspective as someone who left the Republican Party over the takeover of Trump, it seems like so far there's a lot of nice words emanating from Capitol Hill from a lot of folks who brought a lot of true conservative ideas over the years. They seem supportive of the Trump agenda. Does that last? Will there be a principled conservative opposition? Well, it's hard to say because the, the, the big initial test is going to be repeal of Obamacare. The president says, A, he wants it repealed immediately, and B, he wants a replacement in place. The problem is he's therefore saying what he wants is Congress to enact a plan that just doesn't exist at this point. And people are learning that after three or four years under a major entitlement program, you develop what the courts call reliance interests. There are all kinds of people and industries, hospitals, all over the country that have developed patterns of behavior and expectations on the basis of Obamacare, and unwinding it is going to be terribly complicated. The one thing we know is that no one on the Republican side wants to go into the 2018 elections without having repealed Obamacare. So that's the the outer boundary here. How fast this happens, I don't know. Then you're going to have uh, an argument from some conservatives in the House over uh, what taxes are going to remain from Obamacare or be required to be created for the new uh, replacement of it. Then you're going to get to the question of another quite explicit Trump promise, that is a trillion-dollar infrastructure program, and the financing of that, all of which touch hot-button or are hot-button issues for conservatives in Congress. And we're going to see at that point uh, whether Congress still thinks of itself as an independent and co-equal branch of government. The only evidence we've had so far is not encouraging. The Republicans, as they came back after the election, immediately undertook to make changes in the congressional ethics machinery. Mr. Trump disapproved, snapped his finger, and they turned on a dime and did what he said. I don't think that, however, is a, is a model of what's going to happen going forward. Is it your sense that this will be a recognizable conservative agenda, or are you? Or is there an ideology around Donald Trump? Is this a conservative agenda or, or any kind of ideology? When you look at the trillion-dollar infrastructure plan, when you talk about his, him wanting to maintain big chunks of Obamacare or keep, keep a whole bunch of expansions as part of it, are you any more convinced that this is a conservative? Well, I'm not convinced that he's a conservative. Indeed, the, the strongest evidence we have since the election is his behavior with regard to Carrier using the political power of an office he did not yet hold in order to compel a private sector entity to abandon its original estimate of what made economic sense in terms of its fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value to reverse itself and make non-economic decisions under political pressure. That This is what uh, has been called Cadillo ca- capitalism, and it's not an encouraging sign. It depends, really, on whose agenda prevails. The Republicans have, while Obama was in office and prepared to veto anything they sent to his desk, have been using that time creatively to produce an entire 
well-thought-out agenda, health care, financial regulation that is revising Dodd-Frank, infrastructure, all the rest. So they have an agenda ready to go. The question is, does the president know this and does he agree with it? I think he probably doesn't know a lot about it, and I think a good bit of it he doesn't agree with. On the most important problem facing the country over the next decade, which is the unsustainable nature of our entitlement system, particularly Social Security and Medicare, the president-elect early on in his campaign said he wanted no changes. That's fairly unambiguous. Paul Ryan, who's the intellectual leader of the congressional wing of the party, has made entitlement reform uh, the goal of his political life. That is, uh, to put it mildly, a very stark conflict. George, I I seem to recall you at about this time eight years ago uh, hosting a dinner for Barack Obama right before he came into office, right? That's correct. It was a week before the inauguration, and and you were you were you were no uh, you were no Obama apologist at this time. Theoretically, he 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 accepted the invitation and 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 you know wanted wanted to hear your perspective uh, as certainly a, a student of history and and, and uh, somebody I would think anybody would want to hear from. I'm wondering if if the incoming administration have you heard it all from from <laughs> Donald Trump? Have you extended an invitation uh, to Donald Trump? No, it. Uh it would uh, not be seemly for me to invite him or for him to accept it. We have been at daggers drawn for some while and um, <laughs> will we'll remain so. Uh, let me tell you how the, the Obama dinner came about before he was nominated. Uh, I called him up and I said, you're going to be nominated and you're going to win the election. And it would be nice to have a get together with some conservative opinion writers and others to try and rekindle what used to be a, a kind of norm in Washington that people could after hours socialize together without uh, bringing to the dinner table the animosities of the House or Senate chamber and he thought that was a good idea and so we so we brought it about remember this was we were in the midst of an economic freefall at this point shedding hundreds of thousands of jobs a week and a month uh, so the conversation then was mostly about uh, how to cope with uh, how, how to prevent what was a terrible recession becoming a, a second Great Depression? But but let, let me ask you, you, you know, daggers drawn for sure. I mean, you left the party over the guy. Uh, but what what as you come to this, what is a ritual and and and, and general, generally a a hopeful ritual in American history, an inauguration, a peaceful transition of power. What is your kind of greatest hope, your best case scenario for a Trump presidency? Well, my greatest hope would be that uh, four or eight years from now, he'd say, you see, Will, you were wrong. And I could cheerfully say, boy, was I, because you've produced 4% economic growth, and you've got Putin back in a box, and the Chinese are behaving in the South China Sea, and Iran is making a transition to something like a normal state. That's the best possible outcome. Do I expect it? Certainly not. But uh, nothing would please me more than to have to say, gosh, I was wrong. Before we let you go, uh, because you were such a prescient uh, political forecaster and sports forecaster, and we had you on last time talking about the Cubs and Donald Trump, need to ask, who's more likely to repeat? Is it the Chicago Cubs or Donald Trump? (laughs) 
Cleveland Indians. I don't know. Uh, the Cubs uh, in, in on early November 3rd, early in the morning, were the best team in baseball, and they still are. Uh, does the best team always win? No. Does the best man always win in politics? No. So there's an, there's an element of almost endearing randomness to American life, and uh, I'm prepared to be surprised pleasantly in the Cubs uh, case. Endearing randomness. That, that feels like that would be a great title for a book or at least a band or a coffee shop or something. Let's keep that in mind. I like a rock that. group, yes. The endearing <laughs> randomnesses. George Will, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Thanks. All right, and that is all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Next time we come to you, we will be coming to you right smack in the middle of the Donald Trump era. And it is going to be something. It's going to be beautiful, John. And it, it all begins real, really, really soon. Really soon. So thank you for listening. You can check us out on iTunes. Give us a rating. Give us a beautiful, a big, beautiful rating. You can find us on Stitcher, on Google Play, anywhere you get your podcasts. They're all at abcnews.com slash podcasts. Thanks for listening.